Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and on today's episode, I sit down with Sophie Kahn, founder of Orate New York. I wanted to hear from Sophie about how her DTC company is changing the rules in the usually stuffy fine jewelry space and how that's working to grow her business. That's up next. Hey, Sophie, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So you are with, am I saying orate correctly? 100% correct, orate. which is good because a lot of people don't. How do they say it? <laughs> Ague. No, orate is good. Yeah. Like totally. it comes from orator, storyteller. Yep. But people say aurate or orata or a bunch of weird stuff. <laughs> Get it together. At this point, they should know. So you guys are a four-year-old business? Yeah, I mean, the idea came up in 2015. Yep. Um, I went full-time in 2016. Bush and I were both full-time 2017. That's when we raised our, seri- our, our seed round. Yep. And then, so yeah, it's a, basically like four or five years. Amazing. So let's talk about the concept. Talk about where you and Butra came together. Did you guys, are you guys old friends? Yes, we are. It's so We go way back. I feel like we're... We always kind of joke that we're first married to each other before we were married to our husbands. We had our first joint bank account and everything. Yes. Uh, so we met back um, like over 10 years ago in school. So I was from, you know, I'm from Holland, which you can probably tell from my accent that doesn't want to shake. And Bushra's from Morocco and we met in Princeton. So oh, a very like financially oriented program, bunch of men or boys, I would say. And uh, I was one year ahead of Bushra and I saw her and I was like, this girl's cool. We're going to be friends. <laughs> And she was more, you know, French style. She was like, who is this person? But very quickly we became close friends. And then, you know, she went to Goldman Sachs, which makes sense, was a finance program. I went, I never really loved finance necessarily, but, you know, it was a good program to kind of study. So I went to Boston Consulting Group. Perfect. BCG. Always loved fashion. And then went to Marc Jacobs. And when I was there and Bush was a Goldman, that's how we came up with the idea for it. Oh, my gosh. Mark Jacobs. I know. <laughs> it was it was a good it was a good learning experience. I loved it. Yeah. You were doing more strategy there. Exactly. Strategy, marketing and strategy, a bit of both. So when I came, I was a consultant and they were a bit wary of consultants, as I don't know if you know, but they're like, what do these people really do? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you is know, that the attitude? A little bit, which makes sense. I mean, you learn a lot, but it, I can understand if you're not haven't been in that, you don't necessarily know what people actually do, right? Because it's giving a lot of advice. Yeah. So I started off um, essentially in this like weird analytical position, but then quite quickly I moved into doing more marketing. And eventually I was director of strategy working for the CEO and I got to basically touch upon everything that they do, which was super exciting. Oh my gosh. Let's just dig in there a little bit. At Mark Jacobs, can you tell me, tell me about maybe, um, I mean, at the time, this was early 2010. What, what, when was this? This was more like 2012, 2011, 2012. Yeah, okay. I was there for three years before we started Orate. Got it. Things were thriving. What was the business like? What, what was your kind of role? Did you ste- have to steer a certain direction? Yes. Well, there was a big point where we were talking, you know, you had Marc Jacobs, the luxury brand, and then you yep. had Mark by Mark, the more accessible line. And it was about like, how do they two, how do those two interact? Eventually, they actually merged the two lines. I was closely involved with analyzing all of that. So it showed me a lot of like, what's luxury? Yes. What's accessibility? How do you merge the two? Yes. Mark Jacobs was one of the first to do more accessibly priced handbags, right? That's why they really grew back in like 2000. I think it was like with the stamp bag. Do you yes, remember that? Of course. <laughs> yes. Iconic. So exactly. And I think that's also what kind of opened my eyes to accessibly priced luxury and how important that is and how customers kind of are, are craving that, which is, of course, what we eventually did with jewelry. Yeah, we got Danny and my team just did a story on that, on, you know, the Zach Posen 
fall fall out. Poor Zach. But um, do you think his take? What you know, he really weighed in the fact that he had all of these lower end lines that Z Zach posed in, and the Z spoke. Can do you think that you can have luxury, a luxury brand, and a lower end brand? Those can kind of live in harmony, or do you have to pick one or the other? I mean, we clearly picked one or the other. I have a feeling that modern day luxury has it all, right? That's what we're trying to do with Orate. So we're yeah. saying luxury doesn't have to be inaccessible. By def- I mean, back in the day, that's what they thought. Yes. But we think modern luxury can be accessible, and that's actually what makes it so much cooler. So I would go more with the second that you pick your lane. Yeah, so Orate, jewelry, fine jewelry, direct to consumer. Talk about the business model, the white space you saw. What did you and Boutra, what did you talk about when you first launched? So when we, just even to get back to the idea of how it even started, right? I know you know the story, but we were having brunch and I had this, I remember it was this finger, completely green from this overpriced ring. And Boutra and I were like, why is it that women like us, like we have a good salary, we should be able to afford real gold, but even if we can't afford it, it's kind of the old school brands that don't really speak to us. Yes, it's good quality, but it's overpriced. We have yeah. to like spend two months of rent on this, something like that. And it's not transparent. We don't really know what's going on. And the designs are okay, but they're not great. Or you have the excessively priced stuff that's often cool, like the ring I bought, but it turns your finger green after like a couple weeks. Yes. And it's like, and it's, you know, we don't, as older millennials, I guess we're still millennials, but older, <laughs> um, we want something that that lasts, right? And that you can invest in. So Orid was kind of really trying to fill that middle space of things that had the best quality out there, but accessibly priced because we're D2C. We can do that. That's ethically sourced. That's made in New York. And that's transparent. That's yes. kind of the, the core of what it is. And at the time, so disruptive. Like really, all the fine jewelry that was out there, were, was it just these mom and pop shops, the Zales of the world? Yeah, it's a very fragmented industry, right? Yeah. So you have you have obviously the big brands that everybody knows on, on you know Fifth Avenue. And then you have a lot of, you know, Etsy-type brands that are out there. But there was nothing really in the middle. And you know, I mentioned all the product stuff, but then there's kind of the brand, the voice, right? Like, how do people talk to you? And if you think about how, well, I guess there was nobody that was really talking to us, right? Often, if you think about the old school, I guess now, jewelry advertising, it's men t- buying for women, going on a knee, like it's not empowering at all. And you're like, why, why is this? And jewelry is like a women's brand, right? Like, this is what women wear. Men wear it too, but like 80% of the time it's women. Yeah. Why isn't it talking to women? So that was really, it was like the product piece and then the branding piece and putting those two together to create Orate. Awesome. And when you say talk to women, what do you say? Like, what is the approach? What is the voice? It's more buy for yourself. Yes, it's buy for yourself, but it's really because we're D2C, we own the communication channel with our women, right? So something that I noticed at Marc Jacobs, they're very wholesale driven or they were also wholesale driven. So I saw the I mean, there are a lot of advantages to wholesale, right? You basically don't pay for your marketing, but the disadvantage is you don't have that communication with your woman. Yeah. And if you're D2C, you own all of that. So you own the communication with your woman online. You own it. We have stores, right, in our stores. Now, obviously, we have Curate as well. And kind of because of that, we can constantly talk to her. So yeah. whether it's quantitative data, whether it's qualitative data, we do focus groups. Boucher and I, like two weeks ago, still had breakfast with our VIPs, you know, so you can really kind of own that relationship and talk to them about what they care about and what do they want to see more. And it also helps that Boucher and I are a target customer, right? Yeah. Even in the beginning, we were like asking our friends. It's not something that's very esoteric for us to, to create. Oh my gosh, I want to dig into these focus groups. But before we do, talk about the business model and the evolution. You did not start off with this try-at-home box, or did you? No, so in the beginning, I mean, 
when we started, I was at Mark Jacobs, Bush was a Goldman. So we did it on the side, right? So it's oh very gosh. different from other startups that had an idea and had the funding and kind of both were there. We started it super organically, right? Also because both of us didn't even have green cards yet. <laughs> so we oh, were just, wow. we couldn't do it. So we started it while we were there. And that's when we realized, wow, this is really picking up. Like, we're not crazy. Also, we didn't know we were going to be entrepreneurs. It was kind of like, this is an idea. Let's give it a shot. I remember we got a lot of press around it and women were like, wow, this is really what we're looking for. We had this pop-up in Soho. I'll never forget. We had it for 10 days and Bush and I were just standing there and all these women came in. There was this French girl from Balmain who worked there and she was like, this is what I was looking for all my life. And we're like, great. Like, we got it. We know what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so the in the beginning, people are approving. Exactly, exactly. And, she, and that's also helped in terms of how to steer the collection, like what they were looking for, what they really wanted. Um, so in the beginning, it was really retail and online. Yep. And Curate and our home try-on started, you know, a couple of years later. Got it. Did the funding round the very first come early? Did you really have to prove your business? We tried to bootstrap for many reasons. I think one, number one was because we weren't full-time, right? So we just tried to do it as long as we could by ourselves. Um, and also, people aren't going to fund you if you're not working full-time on, on the idea. And also, more importantly, we didn't want to give away too much of our company up front, right? So if the more you've proven and the more you have, you know, proof of concept and even sales and have shown things, it's so much easier to raise. So we only started, we got our seed round in 2017. So that's really a year and a half after we had launched. Oh, great. And how are you marketing from the get-go? So you did this pop-up. What else? So the pop-up was super early on. This was that literally... Was Soho? That was Soho on Spring Seed, where we now have our full-time store. It's the exact hey, same location, which is really cool. Success. Yeah. Um, so we, we decided... And again, I think that's part of our philosophy when people ask me, like, what's kind of your advice to other entrepreneurs? I'm like, just think, do it. <laughs> like, you need to do it, right? So we saw, yeah. found this location on Spring Street. And I remember it was a uh, thousand a day. We saw a number. We just called it. We got it for 10 days. It was like half of what we had <laughs> on the bank account. And we had the, you know, the jewelry in there. And it just kind of started like that's when we proved our concept. And that was all the way back in 2016. Nice. We're influencers out there wearing your stuff, come yes, to the pop-up. Yes, but more organically. So it wasn't something also because we just didn't have the budget, right? Yeah. So you kind of have to find your own way of how to grow your brand and grow your name recognition. It was, and I guess it does help that you wear jewelry, right? So yes. people see it. Um, and even now, something like our biggest source of, you know, we have this exit survey because we're still nerds at heart. So we know exactly how customers come to us. 20% of our sales come from word of mouth. Oh, my gosh. So great. people, you know, telling their friends about it and their family. Got it. So when did the Try at Home box, Curate box, when did that come along? Curate started, I think, somewhere in like 2017 when we, you know, we had our focus groups, as I mentioned, because we do that a lot. And we were asking women like, hey, you know, or it is all about like reducing the barriers to buy fine jewelry. So what is it for you that still creates a barrier? And we had kind of two groups. We had the group that was the jewelry buyers and the Orate buyers. And then we had the other group that was not. And we started asking them, like, what is it that you're still looking for? And, of course, you know, we only have, like, four stores. So somebody that, for instance, lives in Texas and wants to get her jewelry, but we don't have a store there. Right. And she still wants to try it on because she's a bit more, like, she likes to feel it. That's an example of Curate. And then there were also women that were like, listen, I love buying online. I just don't have the time. I'm super busy. I don't have time. I want to get styled. So for that, again, there's Curate. So it was really grew organically again from what our woman is looking for and kind of a gap in the market. Yeah, focus groups. 
Were you meeting? Are these dinners? Are these surveys? It's a mix. Where are you finding these women? Who are you talking to? So a lot of our customers, right? So we really, and I think that's something that we've constantly tried to build is like having this relationship with our customer. So number one, Bushra and I have these breakfasts that we do. We have events. We try to continue to harvest and build this community together. Uh, Specifically for the focus groups, we ask some of our VIPs, we ask some of our other customers. Even every time we send out surveys, we get like a really high response rate. So it's very good to do it that way. For the non-customers, it was a bit harder, but we have like an email list, right? Not everybody on our email list is a customer. So you can source it that way as well. And then friends of friends, friends of customers. So very quickly, you kind of get make that happen and the focus groups we did like the official ones how curate came about was more official was like in our office like we got dinner and everything but we did want to like we recorded it we had like a whiteboard (laughs) it was very much like you know a working session yeah tell me about these vips are they um repeat customers is it a loyalty program it's not an official loyalty program yet but it's definitely something that we keep track of right so something like the top 40 percent of our sales are generated by our top 10 percent of our customers right so there's like this very loyal group that buys a lot Um, so often higher price points they really like love the brand and I think that's a testament to once you feel our product as I hope you know as well you kind of really fall in love with it right and you want to get it more Um, so that's really our VIPs that just spend a lot and spend often either or right they could buy a ton of lower price points we started $50 uh, that's fine too if they buy that like a couple times, and we try to give them whatever we can. So whether it's again like things with the founders, we give them early access to new collections, early access to sales. So we do have kind of an unofficial loyalty program, but we haven't done it official with like points or something like that, which I'm not even sure we'd want to do. Yeah, I would think your your customer base. Everyone is it largely New York? Um, not really. We've really tried. We've really now grown. Uh, within the U.S. and even internationally. We have something like 10% of sales that are international. Um, and that's something we definitely want to expand on in the future as well. Yep. Um, and then within the U.S., so we're really selling in all states. So that's very interesting. Great. And that's part of the, you know, the beauty of being online is that you can do that. Totally. Let's take a quick break. Internationally, Europe, China, the usual suspects? Yes, I think... that's where we're all selling, where we want to eventually expand to. You know, like, I'm Dutch, so I understand. Like, I think for a lot of fully American D2Cs, it's a little scarier, potentially, because you don't know the market. Yeah. You know, I grew up there, I know. And I think, yes, I'm from Holland, but you kind of understand Europe, right? So I think for us, and by the way, people ask us all the time, like, when are you starting? Yeah. (laughs) Somebody from Germany come recently that wanted to kind of, like, launch us there. Uh, But we want to do it ourselves because that's part of, you know, what we do is really owning it. So I would say, you know, Northern Europe, for sure. And then Bushra has a lot of, like, good connections and understanding of the Middle East. Got it. So that's another spot where we're already doing certain things and really it's kind of like a natural progression for us because of our backgrounds. But eventually, obviously, like, Asia makes so much sense. Yes. And the Japanese seem to love us. I think it's this minimal aesthetic that they really like that we have. Um, So we've also gotten a lot of kind of interest from there. Okay. But I think for Japan, as I know from also from our Jacob, you usually do like a JV. So that's like a whole whole different ball game that we'll probably wait with a little bit. Yes. Is it typically about fi- it's finding the right partner, making your you know, your website has to be equipped to for for this totally. market. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then and then what? Like it's about finding the partner who can kind of teach you how to market to, to that customer. Well, for Europe, I think 
we could do it ourselves. Yeah. I think when, you know, when you go to China and Japan, you need to hire people from there, obviously, yep. because, you know, everything from the language, from what works, like it's kind of like you're global, but you're global local, right? Like you need to talk to the people and really understand what they care about and, and you need to adapt your marketing as well. Yes. In the States, gosh, where are your stores right now? So we have three in New York and one in D.C. Okay. And we're hopefully very quickly going to the West Coast. So we have one in Williamsburg that we've had forever on, on Bedford, you know, okay. near, the, near the subway stop there. And then we have one on Madison Avenue that we've also had for a very long time. And then we just opened one in Soho as well. This one from back in the day, the exact same location, which is amazing, like full circle. Were you just waiting for that to open up? <laughs> Kind of, yes. Yeah. It feels so good to be back there because it's, it's kind of strange, you know, like we had it in 2015 for 10 days, right? Like I was mentioning. And now it's like our store. So that feels really good. Nice. And then we have one in DC on M Street. Nice. What's your approach to physical retail? Um, it's kind of back in the day, it was, you know, again, like organic, kind yep. of giving it a shot. And right now it's really creating this immersive brand experience. Like why do people want to come to the store versus online? You really need to have extra reasons to be there right so number one like you have a ton of education there we always make sure we have all our pieces there so people can try and fit uh we think that the sales associates are brand ambassadors so they're very much like sharing the brand sharing the story also it shouldn't feel and i think that's part of what we're trying to do with orate we're democratizing real gold right taking away the intimidation so yep. online that's by being excessively priced and how the way we talk to women but also in retail it should have that same vibe like i hate the feeling when you go into stores and you kind of feel awkward and you don't really want to talk to people and you don't really know what to do and it just feels strange, you know? Yeah. We want that feeling of coming into the store and just feeling welcome. You don't also don't have to buy at all. The whole point is just like get to know the brand, get to know the pieces, take your time, like chat with the girl. We just worked on our, our brand ambassador. We just worked on our like playlist and it should feel very like welcoming, happy, empowering. Um, so it's just like a good vibe to add to the brand experience. Yes. Because these are more expensive pieces, like are some of them, do they need to be like under, under a glass or like you need to ask for help? Is everything kind of out in the open? Everything's out of the open. Yes, yeah. exactly. So taking away that intimidation is super important. Yes, you always run the risk of maybe somebody snagging <laughs> a diamond ring. We have made sure that kind of our higher price points are b further back in the store. Yeah. Uh, but no, we have nothing behind, nothing behind glass. It really should have that idea of like trying it on, right? And I think because we believe so much in our product, we want you to try it on because it feels good. It feels substantial. Like you can't show everything online. Like we try with 360 videos and different types of images, but you can never, it's not the same as seeing it. Yeah. And because again, we believe in the product, the quality of our product. That's why we have Curate. That's why we have our stores. It should be like out in the open, all there, try it on. And I feel like that's something that's catching on in general. Yeah. I feel like kind of delicate jewelry well especially necklaces am i am i making this up just because i'm really eyeing a lot of necklaces right now <laughs> i feel like they're having a moment like these everybody's all about like layering totally and, and the chains with the pendant i mean do you feel the need like is now the time to really stress the idea that this is not going to make your neck green like because <laughs> like, i do feel like there are a lot of cheap yeah. knockoffs really yeah. i mean yes we try to the only thing is we try to stay like on the positive so yeah. kind of like this is like the best quality you know like really focusing on that but for sure I mean that's the whole point is that we don't we want women it's a long-term game right we don't want somebody to just buy something and think it's cool and then after six months it's suddenly green right it's really focusing on the long run 
on customer loyalty, on LTV, on building a brand that's going to last. And for that, you need like insanely good quality, which is why we're so obsessed with finding the right vendors and like quality controlling everything and testing our products before they launch. Like we have a team, it's 80% women and the whole team Where's the products before they launch? It's like a it's like a whole thing. Yes. Um, and I think we market it. Maybe we can market it even more. And like, it's not going to turn your neck green. It's not going to turn your fingers green. We do it in a more like our quality is really good. And I think that kind of once you have it, it speaks for itself. Yes. It's finding the right vendors. That that's talk to me about that, that process. Is it so competitive? It was just well when Bush and I went there in the beginning. They were like, "Who are these young girls?" Like, it made no sense. It's a very male dominated industry. It's really old school, right? It's not the way. It's not a modernized industry. Like fashion is way ahead, like apparel is way ahead of jewelry. Um, so families, generations, we had to like get our foot in the door. There were people, I'm, I was recently talking to one of our casters that now is doing a ton of stuff for us. And I was like, you know, five, four or five years ago, you told me to like go away and you didn't take us seriously. He's like, really? I'm like, yes, really. Um, so yes, it was tough. Yes. We had to kind of like prove ourselves. You know, we also don't come from a family of jewelers or anything like that. We're not even American. So it's kind of, you know, there were a lot of obstacles. And I think the main thing was to, you know, prove that, well, number one, when they started, you know, giving us a little bit, they saw that we were growing and we were ordering more, but payment terms, always paying on time, like keeping the relationship good, having drinks and dinners with them and coffees and breakfasts. and shmoosh, shmoosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All part of the game. Definitely. Tell yeah. me about you, what you've come to learn about your um, your curate box. Are you finding that um, how many pieces are you sending? How many items are people normally kind of buying or keeping? And is that kind of a is that a regular thing or is it always upon request? It's always upon request for now because we don't want to tie people in. Okay. Personally, I have so many subscriptions that then I forget about, you know, like I, I, we don't want to kind of like trick people. Yes. So the idea really is like you order it. It's not subscription. If you like it, we'll do it again. Um, usually we send between three and five pieces. Okay. And it's very much about like what you're looking for. So there's not one style. And I think that's part of it as well. It's not like for one type of woman or one type of mood, like. Sometimes I might want something bigger and bolder and sometimes I want something very dainty, right? And it's yeah. the same kind of for a woman and for curate. It's really like what specifically are you looking for at that moment or for that occasion? Quiz, right? They're taking a yes, exactly, like a quiz, questionnaire. So it's on the one hand it's kind of like quantitative and we have this algorithm in the background that based on what you fill in, shows kind of these are the type of pieces that we think would fit for you. Yeah. And then on top of that, we have the human components from our team of stylists that know what works. Because if you think about all the data points that are come into that, there needs to be that human piece too, right? Like a robot is not going to understand or an algorithm is not going to understand that like you have a wedding and you're looking for blah, blah, blah. So it's this kind of combination of quantitative, qualitative, and then we try to put together the best curate box for you. In general, like our conversion is around 40%, so that's really good. So Great. once people get the box, almost you know, almost half of them keep something. Nice. Gosh, we have this series on our site, kind of a mistake I made, and it was a lot of people are saying, you know, the business model, like we weren't, once we made this change, like it was like, I don't know. Take off. Take off. Boom, baby. Was that the, the differentiator or the difference maker launching the curate box? No, I think, I feel like we never had that like one thing that suddenly, I would say maybe our, our seed funding was that yes. point, right? Where we just had money to actually spend on marketing for the <laughs> first time. That was really our um, our takeoff point. I think Curide kind of just added to the overall experience and definitely helped us grow, but it wasn't 
it didn't really change how we were functioning in a yeah. way. Like online is still our biggest component, then retail, then curate. Because I do think at the end of the day, there are still a lot of women that just want it and want it now, right? Yeah. And do know what they want. Yes. When, so, you finally, when you finally got that money and it was like, let's market. Yes. <laughs> well, how much was going to Instagram, Facebook, and how has that changed? Well, I think that's a very good question that we always tell ourselves, right? Like, I think you cannot build a brand on Instagram and Facebook. It's really dangerous and you have to be super careful to discipline yourself as well. So internally, we tell ourselves we cannot spend more than max, max, max 20% of revenue on Facebook and Instagram or on paid in general, right? So whatever that may be, it could be podcast, could be direct mailers, like anything that's called paid can be max 20%. And the rest has to be organic, right? So whatever that may be, like from the team. So for us, I was mentioning like 20% of our revenue comes from word of mouth. So that's, I guess, speaks to the quality of the product and kind of, I guess, how much people like what they're getting um, and a bit of customer service in there as well. Uh, 20% is SEO. We've invested a lot in content, right? So if you, for instance, Google like gold necklaces, I mean, depending on where you are, but (laughs) we're on the first page. Perfect. Right. So that that took a lot of like investment and time and content with bloggers, like really kind of like talking about all the stuff we're doing, the necklaces, the quality, people writing about that. Um, So kind of really growing that kind of organic channel. And then another 20 percent is our own emails and our text messages. So this kind of channel that, again, we built from like a lot of hard work and a lot of, you know, just time and time again, um, having customers just be part of the Orate world. So that means that more than half of revenue is just generated from brand initiatives, organic initiatives, and that's really healthy. And you kind of have to force yourself because it, I get it. Like it is attractive to just spend a bit more on Facebook and make more. Yeah. But it's a slippery slope. Definitely. Have you got a large content team in-house? Yes. I mean, large is a, like, I guess, subjective matter, but we try to kind of keep our team if you look at a percentage wise, we definitely have a, a large percentage on marketing and then specifically on content. Yes. Because it's it's really important to again not just sell a product, but you're selling a brand, you're selling a brand story, right? Like or it literally means storyteller. Yes. We're telling we're telling a you story have with a story. Yes, exactly. So everything we do comes with a story and that kind of that whole even our product pages, right? They tell a story, our website tells a story, our retail tells a story, curate tells a story, our brand ambassadors tell a story product tells a story so you want to kind of like constantly invest in that and then it reaps its benefits in terms of for instance like SEO. Yeah it's a lot of that how to wear it is a lot of that are you doing video is it more imagery is it more copy? It's all of it it's all of it it really is and it depends on the collection right sometimes it's about like for the Sensu collection it was about these Japanese dancers that were inspiring sometimes it's about women we've collaborated with women and tell their story sometimes it's really about the fact that everything's recycled gold and kind of how we combine that into the jewelry. Sometimes it's about like the diamonds. It could be it could be literally anything. There's so much to actually say. Yeah. I do think the bottom line is that we're always trying to heroify the woman, right? So whoever a woman is and really talking about her. Um, so we do often talk about like we have a blog that talks about our woman and how she raises the bar in whatever she may be doing. So it's definitely a lot about like Putting the spotlight on her. Yes. So no dudes, jewelry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not I mean, for men just yet. 
we have a couple pieces that men could wear, but Agreed. you know, our focus is definitely on women. 80 to 90% of our customers are women. That makes perfect sense. Like Speaking of uh, crowdsourcing, getting direct feedback from your Mm-mm-mm. customer, you have a crowdsource capsule. Is, is that still ongoing or is that a one-time thing? And tell me about the success. Yes, I love the crowdsource capsule because I designed the pieces, but I don't design it in a way of like the old school way that people design that I would, you know, go in a field and kind of like look at the sky and get inspired <laughs> by whatever's happening then at that moment. It's very much like for our woman, right? So the crowdsource capsule specifically was really something where we were like, okay, we're going to have her essentially design something. So what we did is we started off with our like quantitative data points and looking at what she's been looking for online, what she's been asking for in stores. Every day we get reports from the stores on like designs that she's asking for and what we've heard okay. from focus groups. So if you combine all of that together, we made like 20 to 30 designs that kind of fit what she was asking for. Then we, we made all of those prototypes. We had her come in. And we said, like, a couple, you know, of a smaller focus group come in and say, like, which of these 20 to 30 do you like most and why? And what do you not like? And we kind of boiled it down to more five to six to seven pieces, Um, the ones that were the favorite. Then we made some edits to those based on, you know, like, I think this should be a little smaller, thinner, more diamonds, whatever it was that she wanted. And then we had them, another group come in and actually test wear it for like a month. Okay. see, you know, how does it feel? Like, oh, it's too heavy on my ear. Uh, It tangles here and here, whatever it may be. Again, make the final edits to that, and then eventually we launch. So it was a really cool process because you kind of incorporated them all along the way with their feedback. Yeah. Which is kind of what we always do, but this was a more, like, official way, right? And the initial designs really came from them. Yeah. Were you documenting this? I feel like everybody wants to know that they're, you know, part of the design process. Yes. That's cool. Yes, yes, yes. We definitely, like... Spoke to our women, told them afterwards what yeah. a help they were. It's kind of like really, again, it should feel like or it is part of them and tells their story, right? And this is just a perfect example of that. Is that Was that a test kind of of going forward? Was the success of that really next level compared to other collections or how would you describe it? Yes, I think we'd like to do this at least once a year, if not okay. more. I mean, it's it's time consuming, right? That's, I think, the only drawback, is which is a lot of, I guess, running a startup is kind of like how are you just prioritizing your time and you know what's the highest priority at that point uh, but it's definitely something that we want to continue to do because it is the epitome of what Orit is about and it's something that's unique to us yes you recently received was it your second round of funding yes it was the you know the bigger one the <laughs> big dog a, the big dog <laughs> felt very good to have that exactly yeah and so the focus for that that has to do with your international that has to do with more physical anything yep. else I mean I think just putting the pedal to the metal in everything that we're doing, right? So we tried to, in terms of like how we went about raising it, we tried to be super diligent because if you're not careful as a founder, your job can be, you know, chief fundraising officer, (laughs) which is really not what we want to be. We want to be, you know, operators and we're doing the job. So what we did is in advance, we started asking, you know, people around, whether it's other founders, but also just you know, people that actually VCs and family offices, what do you guys care about? Like, what do you want to see in our numbers, right? And from that came three things, like growth. You know, they want to see at least 2x, but, you know, we were aiming for much more year over year. They want to see efficiency. So you need to have like a good low CAC, right? And then ideally you have to be profitable on first purchase, have a good LTV to CAC. So really kind of like that efficiency. Yeah. And then the third thing is customer loyalty. So really kind of, which is something that we're very much focused on is like, how can we make sure 
that our customer is loyal, that she comes back, that she cares about this, which I understand from investor standpoint, because that means you're good for the long term, right? Yes. And then I guess the f- last thing that they look at, which is a little bit less tangible, but is ha- do you have a real brand? Do you have something that can't just be copied by somebody else? Do you really stand for something? So that's something that's from the four, not quantitative, but also really important. So this we figured out, I would say, well a year before we started raising, right? So very okay. much kind of like the good students, <laughs> knowing what we needed to achieve, and then kind of going out to, to get that done uh, just within our businesses, right? And then um, whether it's in marketing and ops, like it touches upon retail, it touches upon all aspects to make these KPIs happen. And when we felt like, okay, we have them, that's when we went out to do the raise and we were like, let's make this quick and swift. And I think within like three months we had it all set, done, sealed, delivered, and we could go back to just kind of doing our other stuff. Do your thing. Yeah, exactly. Gosh. So two times growth, that that's nothing. I mean, we're What's more, your goal? We're around four. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And to keep customers coming back to maintain that loyalty, is it just about always, you know, being top of mind, like other than word of mouth and just they're falling in love. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, all of those, I do think also new collections help. Right? Yeah. So we launch new collections every month, which is a nothing. Um, and really, you know, not just launching for the sake of launching, but launching things that are new and that they're looking for, right? So whether it's a crowdsource capsule or different materials that they're looking for, very much listening to them and figuring out what they want. Yeah. And then a lot of this exactly like loyalty programs that are unofficial, I guess, but, you know, talking to them and hearing what they're saying, keeping them involved. And quite frankly, like, look, we're going up against the big guys, right, that have way more funding, way more everything. So the only thing we have is hopefully the hearts of our women, right? So that's what we need to kind of, like, work on and constantly focus on. Like, on the wall in our office, like, the first, you know, we have our commandments, 10 golden commandments. The first one is obsess about our customer. That's it, right? And if you do that, then I think loyalty comes by itself. Right on. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sophie. This is great. Thank you so much for having us. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Please head to the review section on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast to give us a rating and tell us what you think. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.